Hello everyone, I'm Carol Brown, the new director of the Sioux Spiritual Center in Howe, South Dakota, and I'm here with Deacon Marlon Leneau, director of the Office of Native Ministries for the Diocese of Rapid City. And um, we are taking this opportunity to uh, try to create a little window. I know that uh, often our cultures live kind of very close together and often don't know much about each other. Uh, I'm from Faith, South Dakota, and grew up very close to the Cheyenne River uh, reservation, but uh, didn't really know a lot about Native American culture uh, until now. As I'm, I'm in my fifties. I'm now the new director of the Sioux Spiritual Center and um, learning a lot about uh, the Native American culture. So we we thought it might be nice if the two of us could visit. And I, I come uh, humbly claiming my my ignorance and my need for education. And Marlon. And I are going to visit today a little bit about Black Elk. Uh, Nicholas Black Elk has a cause for canonization in the Diocese of Rapid City. And uh, his story is a little bit misunderstood. So we're, we're going to use that as a platform to um, to help me to understand more about Native American culture and especially Native American Catholic culture. And uh, hopefully that will create a window for those of you who are listening to um, gain some insight and education as well. So if you're like me, you might have come across a book sometime in your education called Black Elk Speaks. For a long time, it's been considered one of the classics in the vast body of literature relating to North American Indians. I read it in college for a course on Indian studies, and I can remember being deeply moved by it and, and really deeply troubled in some ways by um, the history that it revealed, the troubled history that it revealed. Um, but in recent decades, the book has come under some considerable criticism because it leaves the reader with the sense that Black Elk was uh, lived and died as a disenfranchised Indian man suffering from heartbreak over the way of life that was going by the wayside. You, you're kind of left with the impression of an old man looking back at the end of his life in a deep state of grief. But in fact, Black Elk was not that old when he was interviewed by John Nehart in 1932, was it? in the early 1930s anyway, yeah. Uh, Nehart had a particular interest in capturing or maybe getting a snapshot of what it was like to be Indian before the white people arrived in great numbers. So, uh, and, that, and that's, a, that's an objective that I think is, is worthy to capture. Um, but unfortunately, it leaves the, uh, it leaves the reader with the, the impression, as I said, of, of Black Elk kind of being you know, dejected and, and sad at the end of his life. Uh, it leaves out a, a very important and large segment of Black Elk's life, which happened when he became Catholic. And uh, not only Catholic, but really a missionary disciple uh, going all over the region, um, uh, explaining the Catholic faith to big numbers of, of Native Americans, and really being a, a very effective witness to it. So, so Nehart's book, Black Elk Speaks, stops short of telling the rest of the story. And today, Marlon and I are going to visit about the rest of the story. So, first of all, Marlon, uh, maybe you could tell us about some of the landmarks that characterized Black Elk's life, the big picture. Yeah, good morning. I'm Marlon, Marlon Lenoel. Um As Carol mentioned, I'm the director of Native Ministry and um, kind of in this cause with the Diocese of Rapid City. Um, Nicholas, as a young man, um, 
he lived an extraordinary young life. Um, he was present. He fought in the Battle of uh, Little Bighorn, and he was uh, he was wounded at um, during the Wounded Knee Massacre. And what was uh, more extraordinary about all this is that to find a a medicine man that was a kind of still like a boy was incredible. Mm. Usually, you you were an older person when you. Mm-hmm. We had the right to become a medicine person. Mm-hmm. In the lead up to what happened at Wounded Knee, uh, there, there, there obviously had been an enormous amount of stress on the Indian people, not only just because of the, the influx of white settlers, but also the weather was an enormous uh, uh, factor. That was a very hard winter, and there was a growing sense of need for some someone to save them from all this that, that was happening. And so... In the uh, and correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, Marlon, because obviously <laughs> I'm I'm the I'm the outsider here. But as I've as I've come to understand it, um, one of the things that uh, that they were inspired to do was they created these uh, these things called a ghost shirt, and and a ghost dance that went with it. And it, am I right in saying that it was a it was a uh, sort of a prayer to the ancestors to come and help them? Uh, in their mm-hmm. present in their present need, and so tell us about the ghost dance a little bit more. What what uh, was that? That was going on for like a couple of years before right. the wounded knee thing happened. Right. And yeah, like you said, it was really hard times for the people. Um, they were starving and they were being placed on reservations, and they didn't really know what was happening. They couldn't go out and freely hunt anymore, and their their livelihood was being taken away from them. And so, um, and likewise for the settlers that were here, the white settlers, they too had a lot of fear because they never knew when there was going to be an attack or an uprising as they were, they were calling it back then. But this one Paiute uh, spiritual leader from down south, obviously, came and was, uh, was preaching a new way, a new way that he was telling the people up here that if you do this, then your buffalo will return, all the white people will disappear, and your deceased relative will come back to life. That was the message of the ghost dance. And so the people, like you said, they wanted to believe this so bad, they wanted something good to happen to them. Mm-hmm. And so they, it was kind of a movement or kind of a cult mm-hmm. back then that they got involved in. And uh, as part of this, they they sewed up these ghost dance shirts. And what these ghost dance shirts were, they were told by this Wovoka, is that uh, it will protect them from the white man's bullets. Mm. And so, um, obviously, we know the we we know the outcome of all this. <laughs> There's some thunder. We're having some weather here right now, actually. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, because of this, then there was this uh, huge, huge killing at Wounded Knee out of fear from the white settlers and just out of despair from the Indians. They mm-hmm. wanted so bad for something good to happen to the people. Sure, yeah. So that was kind of the uh, the ghost dance era uh-huh, that uh-huh. happened. Yeah, and um, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, that... Um, 
Well, it sounds like the the wounded knee thing was kind of a, a disaster that was not meant to happen. I, I've read a couple different accounts of it, and uh, it, it seems as though, I mean, partly it was weather. This was December when, when it very happened, cold, and yes. things had been very cold. They hadn't been given the provisions that they were promised, and they they, sh- they showed up down there looking to the agency. to uh, They were moving towards the agency, I think, to uh, to try to get some help. And uh, a lot of them were sick, obviously, and Bigfoot was, was very sick at that time. Um, Chief Bigfoot, was it Chief Bigfoot? Yes. Very sick at that time. And uh, so there was, a, there was a hospital set up for them. I, th- I think there was a, a request of, of giving up their arms. And so for the most part, they were giving up their arms. But there was one fella who, who, who didn't give up his gar- arms, and there was, a, there was a, got into a wrestling match, and the gun went off. And that was what sort of was the domino that started tipping over all the other dominoes. Right. And, uh, and it just, things got just very ugly very fast, uh, partly because of the fear that was, um, you know, the, I guess the ghost dance was, was, um, was generating a certain amount of fear among the, um, among the, the white population. And, uh, so everybody's really on edge anyway. Yes. And, uh, so, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's difficult not to look back on that and just, you know, shake your head and, and wonder how differently things could have worked out, you know, uh, with just a bit of humanity towards each other, you know, um, so, yeah, like you said, there was there's a, a a few accounts of the story of how it happened. One of the stories that I read was like just what you said. There was a little skirmish between a, a soldier trying to take the gun from a, a, the native person, and the gun just accidentally discharged. The other account that I was reading was that this this uh, this native person was deaf, oh. and he didn't know what the what the soldier wanted. Oh, and right. so again, there was yeah. this skirmish and the gun yeah. discharged. Yeah, and of course, the accounts, some of the accounts that were written and uh, about the incident was that the soldiers were drinking. Oh, mm-hmm. so that yeah. that kind of played a part in all this right. too. Yeah, right. And Bigfoot had just fled from Canada mm-hmm. because of or 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 from. Um, North Dakota, mm-hmm. because uh, Sitting Bull just got killed. That's right, yeah. Yeah, He was so, killed in Cheyenne, was he, in yes. the Cheyenne River Reservation? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so they fled out of that they were going to be punished. So there's a lot of anxiety going yes, around on all, everyone's much. parts. Yes. Yeah, and uh, obviously with the language barrier and all that would, all that would go with that, uh, you know, just an enormous, just a, it was a disaster. After the wounded knee... Uh, event uh, initially at least uh, Black Elk was really in a revenge mode he really wanted to he, he just had a deep desire to at least this is the way it's reported in the in the Black Elk Speaks book um, and some of that is kind of poetically transcribed by Nehart so it's a little hard to pick out okay what's Black Elk and what's Nehart being poetic about things but it describes him or he you know he he's the words that Nehart puts in his mouth is that he, he wanted revenge for a time. So in the lead up to Wounded Knee for a couple of years, there had been a strong um, kind of gravitation to this ghost dance, ghost shirt practice uh, in the hope that it would be a saving experience for the 
um, native people. And of course that prophecy was very attractive as well, that the buffalo would come back, that the white people would be all gone and they could go back to their, back to their way of life. Um, but after Wounded Knee, when the ghost shirt didn't work the way it was supposed to, I, I was reflecting on this the other day. I wonder if it was kind of a moment, like the moment in the Old Testament where um, the wor- the Elijah had gotten all the people who worshipped uh, the Baal gods together, and, and they, what they were supposed to do was get their sacrifice together and then pray to their gods and ask those gods to um, set the sacrifice on fire. And so they, they danced and they prayed to their gods and they worked themselves into a frenzy and, and nothing happened. And then Elijah threw water all over his sacrifice. And, you know, one would think it was so damp that it wouldn't ever go on fire. But when he prayed to his God, it just went up in flames. And it was the moment of kind of clarity for those who were worshiping this false God that this is where the living and true God is. And perhaps, uh, in a sense, the the moment after Wounded Knee, um, when the ghost shirt didn't work as as it was told to them it would, uh, was a moment when they, they reflected and, and, and thought, no, maybe we should be open to another proposition. You know, maybe we should look at, at other opportunities. And so do you think that's accurate or do you think that's, is that a good guess at kind of the mentality? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a good interpretation of kind of what happened. The people really, uh, put, put a lot of hope into this goal stance. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think at the end there, after Wounded Knee, they realized that this isn't going to work. Yeah, yeah. We can't do this anymore. We, yeah. You know, our people are being killed yeah. now by this. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think that's good. Yeah, yeah. So there was a, more of a tentative openness then to explore other possibilities. And uh, there's a scene described in both of the Stelton Camp books where um, Black Elk had been called upon as a medicine man to come and heal a little boy. And... Uh, and someone also called a priest. I guess mm-hmm. this family was also Catholic. And so they had called the medicine man, but they also called the priest. So the priest came over to do last rites, and he got a little rough on Black black Elk and kind of threw him out of the house or mm-hmm. something like threw that. It was, it was a little, little rough. It's a little hard to read it and, you know, not think he was being a bit rough. And then there's a, a few other interpretations that it wasn't really that rough. But anyway, somehow these two got to be friends and ended up riding off in the wagon together and talking. And, um, and the priest... Uh, somehow encouraged or attracted uh, uh, Black Elk to uh, to uh, consider Christianity, and that's how he ended up going over to Holy Rosary for a time to do some catechetical instruction and opening up his life uh, to uh, to Christ. Um, uh, he was always curious about what Christianity was all about. He had actually gone to Europe, hadn't he, to try yes. to understand the what? Europeans' customs and ways. Yeah, right, he did. With and, uh, Buffalo Bill's, uh, was it Buffalo Wild Bill? Wild West Show. The yeah. Wild West Show, yeah. Right. And uh, upon him um, wanting to know this knowledge about Christianity, he found a, a Jesuit priest that uh, he liked very much at Holy Rosary Mission. And upon his priest's uh, welcoming, he he went to Holy Rosary Mission to live and to study about Christianity. And so he was there several months learning, uh, being catechized by this priest and other priests there, I'm sure. And then in 1904, in December, December 5th, uh, he became, he was baptized a Catholic. And that's where he took the name of 
Nicholas because um, he resonated with uh, the attributes of St. Nicholas, who was very generous and uh, good to people. Mm -hmm. That's why he chose the name Nicholas. Uh, through his visions and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, he was kind of like a modern-day uh, modern Paul. He went about evangelizing and many reservations uh, in, in Wyoming and Nebraska and South Dakota and North Dakota. Um, there are stories about him coming and being uh, with the people, sharing the gospel. And as always, he, he took his uh, Two Roads Catechism model with him. And he shared that information with uh, people and all, and most importantly, the children. Yeah, and let's let's pause and talk about that two roads catechism. Um, it's a uh, it's kind of a banner type thing, isn't it? About maybe a foot and a half wide and three or four feet long, uh, and it's got a picture on it of two roads. Yes, and it has different scenes from salvation history uh, drawn on it. Exactly, and so a catechist can roll that out in front of children or adults or whatever, and kind of walk them through the story of Christianity. Of Christianity, yes. yeah, yeah, very interesting. Uh. There was a man named uh, Michael Steltenkamp. He's a priest, Jesuit priest, and he had come to Pine Ridge uh, in the 70s, having kind of read Black Elk Speaks and maybe in the same sort of mindset that I was in uh, when I read Black Elk Speaks, of just feeling really bad about, you know, everything that happened and, um, you know, sort of the mood of the 70s uh, was, uh, there was there was a lot going on even in South Dakota in the 70s of, of trying to recover a lot of the Native American traditions and so on and so forth. And so he, when he came to the reservation, um, he was very sympathetic to that view. And he happened to run into Black Elk's daughter, uh, who was waiting for her child after school, I think. And, and he introduced himself to her and they got to visiting and and uh, he found out that she was Black Elk's daughter. Her name was uh, Lucy. Yes. Um, and um, anyway, she shared with him that the Nyhart book had... Uh, really not told the whole story and that her father had become so deeply Catholic uh, and so persuaded of the of the the truth of Catholicism uh, and she really felt like that was a story that needed to be told and so um, over the course of the of the next several years uh, Michael Steltenkamp would meet with her and interview her and and really got the rest of the story and so that story is told in a couple of different books uh one of them is black elk holy man of the ogallala the other one is black elk medicine man missionary and mystic by michael steltenkamp and um in that in both of those books he he goes into great detail to um for lack of a better word, sort of correct the picture that is left by the Black Elk Speaks book. And it's fascinating, all of the, all of the insight that comes out of that about Native American culture. I think what the book did was uh, continue, continue his um, Black Elk's um, mission as being a catechist. Uh -huh. Because the Black Elk Speaks kind of ended with, uh, like you said, kind mm -hmm. of a heartbreak and this old man was kind of downtrodden. Yeah. So the the book by Staltenkamp kind of picks up on his Catholic identity. It told about how how he fell in love with uh, with the Christian God, 
how he saw the same God in, in Lakota as well he's, as he did in Christianity. And his trip to Europe really opened his eyes about who, who Christians were and how they treated one another. Mm-hmm. He really liked that model of their actions and their deeds that mm-hmm. they did. Mm-hmm. So tell us about Black Elk's missionary work. Um, like I said earlier, he was kind of like a modern-day St. Paul, traveled, traveled the reservation country here and uh, just just preached the good news mm-hmm. where, wherever he could. Mm-hmm. The book alludes to a lot of fact, uh, a lot of times about church services where um, he would go and he would, um, it told about how they had the service and the prayers that were said and the songs that were sung and how he he would give a talk mm-hmm. at the end of his, um, at, at the end of the service, just like uh, giving a homily. Mm-hmm. Um, he taught, and, and again, he really stresses the, um, the catechism of the children. He always told people that when he was leaving them that they needed to teach their children, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. teach their children these, these Catholic ways, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because that's what's going to be important to them. Mm-hmm. He was hoping that um, his way would shed light, um, the the Christianity would shed light on how to live amongst each other mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to get along mm-hmm. and to be at peace with each other. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was his hope for his family a lot, Yeah, was that they could um, not necessarily be... Um, become white, but to um, live among the people. Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, Christianity provides a way of life for so many different cultures. And one of the things that surprised me when I was reading the book was this discovery that, um, you know, I I suppose in my mind's eye, I imagined, you know, the, the... European priests arriving and sort of imposing Catholicism on on the Native American folks. But what I found out when from Lucy's testimony, as as told through Michael Steltenkamp, was that um, actually the Jesuit priests were extraordinarily kind uh, to the uh, to the Native American folks, and they really uh, resonated, especially with the story of salvation history, because here's a tribal people who's wandering in the wilderness and. God intervenes in their circumstances, and they they just really had a a sense of resonance with that. You know, it it, it made sense because that's kind of the life that they had been living as well. They had had encounters with the holy as well, and they they already had um, some familiarity and experience with God's provision for them uh, when they were um, before the before the white people came. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was something that really struck me. The other thing too, uh, we were talking about Black Elk being kind of a Saint Paul. I guess he was an extraordinary preacher. Uh, they they yes. they really said he really had a real gift for uh, arousing uh, the the sentiments of his audience, you know, and just really drawing them in. And so, one of the things that w- was amazing to me was to learn that in 1910 there was a an Indian catechetical congress down in I think Pine Ridge. In Michael Steltenkamp's book, it says uh, the Catholic Sioux Congress was held around the 4th of July and drew as many as 3,000 participants each summer. Missionaries designed this three-day event as an alternative to Sundance or Independence Day celebrations. It was an occasion for the Catholic population to celebrate its solidarity both spiritually and socially. 
And so I was just really struck by that because, you know, 3,000 people, moving 3,000 people, is a, it's an enormous feat, you know. And when you're traveling by horseback or walking yes. on foot or, you know, bringing little wagons or whatever, um, it's, it's just a, amazing to me to think that already in 1910, 3,000 people would show up for a catechetical congress. Can you imagine that in Rapid City today? <laughs> I think even for the National Tekuitha Conference here last year, we had... We had over 800. Yeah, and we're thrilled, and it's a yeah. national congress. And exactly. if you think, you know, here in uh, here in South Dakota in the early part of the century, 1911, 1910, that already they were seeing thousands of people show up. And what a hunger for the faith that represents. What a hunger for knowledge, you know. Uh, so um, would love to sort of rekindle that. In any case, we now have a cause for canonization for Nicholas Black Elk. Right. And maybe you could talk to me about that a little bit. This all started back in um, in Rome, to be honest with everybody, that it was um, at the at the canonization mass for Blessed Kateri Tekawitha mm-hmm. that his grandson, Black Elk's grandson, George Looks Twice, was sitting next to a... a the archivist from uh, Marquette University. Mm-hmm. And just out of casual conversation, they didn't know each other, uh, George tells Mark Thiel, I hope one day that they do this for my grandpa. Mm-hmm. And um, Mark thought about this and thought about this, and he he didn't know who his grandpa was. So finally he asked him, mm-hmm. well, who is your grandpa and who, who are you? And that's when he told him it was Nicholas Black Elk and Mark had already been here working working with Pine Ridge and mm-hmm. Rosebud mm-hmm. reservations mm-hmm. and so he knew he he knew the story and the history of Nicholas Black Elk. And so after that they that's when the pe- petition drive started mm-hmm. when they returned from that canonization mass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like I said, over fourteen hundred people signed this petition. Fabulous. Yeah. Fascinating. And most of them Native Americans from across the United States, right. Canada. Wow, wow, yeah. wow. Well, that's extraordinary. Uh, here in our diocese back in 2014, at that uh, Pastoral Ministry Day Mass, we had the, um, the great-grandchildren or the grandchildren of Nicholas Black Elk uh, presented Bishop Bruce with a petition signed by over 1,400 people asking bishop to open this cause for canonization. And so the bishop, um, not wanting to make, he wanted to make sure everything was correct and everything was in order. Real prudence in doing this, because I mean, it's not, it's not every day you go for canonization of some person. And so after, after a couple years there of uh, maybe a year and a half of thinking about it and questioning and re- researching and all that in on October 21st of night of 2016 at Holy Rosary Church in Pine Ridge he opened the cause for Nicholas Blackout to become a saint and once he did that then Nicholas Blackout became servant of God and that's 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 where we're at right now he's he's considered servant of God and uh, a couple weeks ago, the person from Rome came to visit. I, I always thought he was a Vatican official, but he's a, a parish priest in Rome who does this kind of work as um, 
guiding um, people through the canonization process. So he's a, a postulator, they call him. Well, he came and he, he spent a few days with Michael Steltenkamp, and then he journeyed this way. And um, here at the diocese, they, they, the committee met with him, and he was very, um, he's very upbeat about this cause for canonization. Um, and he said that he, he will go back to Rome now and he has to write a position paper on all this, the facts, um, documentation, um, books about black elk have to be, all the information, um, especially if they're written by Nicholas Black Elk has to kind of be studied and mm -hmm. kind of scrutinized. Mm -hmm. And all these books that are about Nicholas Black Elk, they have to be researched and making sure that a lot of this information is factual and if there's eyewitnesses, mm -hmm. then you bring into the fact that um, you can bring in witnesses yourself as to people that knew him or that uh, uh, people that heard exact words from him, they could testify to this. Mm -hmm. But it had to be first-hand information, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. I, I heard from my friend that yeah. Nicholas did this. Mm -hmm. And so once once he writes this uh, position paper, which is called the Positio, then Nicholas Black Elk will become uh, blessed, blessed Nicholas Black Elk. Mm -hmm. And then after that, that's when we need two miracles. Okay. And uh, kind of one of them uh, would be about healing, mm -hmm. and then the other one could be another kind of a miracle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, and then that would that would advance the canonization cause. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, um, what do you think uh, the potential is in the event that Nicholas Black Elk is, um, you know, uh, canonized? of recapturing the interest of young Native American Catholics for the Catholic faith. I know there's been, in the last few decades, there's been sort of a resurgence of interest in the um, in the more traditional ways. And then with our millennial generation being so caught up in their phones and their <laughs> technology, you know, that we there's been kind of a struggle, I think, to uh, to really communicate the faith to the next generation. I mean, and that's kind of across the board, no matter which you know, ethnicity you're in, you know, we, we, we've kind of struggled to communicate uh, the faith to, to them. Do you think there, with, with Nicholas Blackout potentially becoming a saint, that there might be an opportunity there? I think that's the hope. Yeah. I think that's the hope that this all brings. Mm -hmm. um, Nick, one of Nicholas Blackout's uh, visions that he talks about and his prophecy along with Chief Crazy Horse, talks about this seventh generation that is coming. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think as a starting point for the seventh generation, they use Wounded Knee as the starting point. Mm -hmm. So if you go back seven generations, 
and you figure each generation maybe 20 years mm -hmm. or even with Lakota they're, they're pretty young mm -hmm. you might even look at maybe 16 17 mm -hmm. year olds mm -hmm. you know for an, uh, for a generation mm -hmm. but the time frame is soon mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. time frame begins from 19 or 2020 to mm -hmm. 2030 mm -hmm. and so I think there's a lot of hope on mm -hmm. the seventh generation that's coming up and mm -hmm. like you said we you know out of the out of the mouths of babes because right now we see this seventh generation is like you said they're millennials and they're into phones they're into gadgets um, they're kind of more into themselves mm -hmm. and so I I really hope that this uh, this uh, prophecy that they have mm -hmm. comes true mm -hmm. and I, that it brings more people yeah. to their faith. Uh, Black Elk had two visions in his life. One happened when he was a sick little boy, right. and the other one happened after Wounded Knee, before he became a Christian. So it was after Wounded Knee, after he had been to Europe. So he had had some exposure to Christian stuff, and then he had this vision. I think one of the things that he really prophesied about was that um, all people were to be one, because mm -hmm. his vision of Christ in the Sundance Circle, mm -hmm. where he tells about how there was a man in the Sundance Circle, and he was hanging from the tree, and um, all of a sudden he said he was a very, very handsome man, and he had a, he wore his hair long, and he had an eagle feather in his hair. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden he changed the, to the color of red, mm -hmm. and um, he told, he told them, he told him in his vision that I am. I have come for all peoples. Mm -hmm. I will gather all people under me. Mm -hmm. And so I think with that, Black Elk really saw that. Um, he really related that to um, Jesus coming. Yeah. And that how how Jesus was, uh, how the similarities in Catholic and um, Christian or Catholic and uh, Lakota traditional yeah. kind of uh, meshed together. So this is the excerpt about that, and it's written in a book called The Sixth Grandfather. This book is the actual transcripts of Nyhart's daughter uh, taking dictation from uh, Black Elk's son as he spoke. And so it's a probably a little bit more accurate rendering of the vision as Black Elk described it, which um, Nyhart conveniently left a few bits out of. So this is on page 263 of The Sixth Grandfather. And it says, as I landed there, I saw 12 men coming toward me, and they stood before me and said, Our father, the two-legged chief, you shall see. Then I went to the center of the circle with these men, and there I saw the tree in full bloom. Against the tree I saw a man standing with outstretched arms. As we stood close to him, these 12 men said, Behold him. The man with outstretched arms looked at me, and I didn't know whether he was a white or an Indian. He did not resemble Christ. He looked like an Indian, but I wasn't sure of it. He had long hair, which was hanging down loose. On the left side of his head was an eagle feather. His body was painted red. At that time, I had never had anything to do with white men's religion, and I had never seen any picture of Christ. This man said to me, My life is such that all earthly beings that grow belong to me. My father has said this. You must say this. I stood there gazing at him and tried to recognize him. I could not make him out. He was a nice-looking man. As I looked at him, his body began to transform. His body changed into all colors, and it was very beautiful. 
All around him there was light. Then he disappeared all at once. It seemed as though there were wounds in the palms of his hands. Those twelve men said to me, Turn around and behold your nation. Your nation's life is such. The day was beautiful. The heavens were all yellow and the earth was green. You could see the green word of the earth. And the men that I saw were all beautiful. And it seemed that there were no old men there. They were all young. There were no children either. All were about the same age. Then twelve women came and stood in front of me. They said, Behold them. Your nation's life is such. Their ways of life you shall take back to the earth. The women were dressed beautifully with ornaments of all kinds. As they finished speaking to me, I heard singing in the west where the sun goes down. When I heard this song, I learned it. I prepared myself to come back, and before I started, the twelve men took two sticks and pounded them into the ground, and they said, Take these, you shall depend on them. One of the sticks was painted white, and the other was painted red. They were about a yard high. And the the vision goes on for a while here, but I, I just was so struck by um, the Christological symbolism in, in the in the vision that he had. Certainly turning red certainly speaks of being covered in blood, blood doesn't right, it? Mm-hmm. Right, shedding blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What he said was to the effect of, I am for all people and I... I come for all people. And I come for all people and I want them to be one or something yeah, like that. I, yeah, so, I gather so, them all I, I gather me. into one. So it's sort of a prophecy that there will be a great reconciliation coming, a time of real deep, profound reconciliation between... Uh, peoples. All peoples. All peoples, yes. yeah. And so that starts here. That starts here in Rapid City for sure. You know, we're right next to each other. And as I said, you know, I grew up, you know, 20 miles down the road from the reservation <laughs> and didn't know very much about this culture. And now the Lord has, has allowed me to come and be a leader in this in this Native American ministry in the Sioux Spiritual Center. So there's a real opportunity for us to maybe at this stage, there's a grace available to us to um, break down some of the walls and some of the um, some of the fraught feelings uh, and and begin to grow in a deep Christ centered relationship with each other. That sounds good. That sounds very good. Amen. Amen. (laughs) All right. We'll leave it at that. Thanks for joining us today, and uh, we look forward to visiting with you again at some point in the future. God bless.